I would love for you to turn to the book of Isaiah first. <laughs> we're going to be in a couple of places this morning, but that we're going to start in the book of Isaiah here in a second. Um, we're going to be back in uh, starting chapter 12 of Mark in a second. But Isaiah chapter 5, if you would turn there, um, because this passage in Isaiah is a direct connection to what Jesus is going to tell them a story about here in a little bit. But Mark writes his testimony of Jesus from the viewpoint of uh, Peter, we believe, but he also tunes it and, and tweaks it so it's for non-Jew believers. He's writing to possibly a church of people in Rome, but he's not writing a letter to them like Paul wrote letters to the Galatians and the Colossians. He's writing a record of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now he records an encounter with these Jewish religious leaders, and he's going to give them a tale of their fate, what's coming, because God has already pronounced that on them, of their, of the, their leaders and the religion of the Jewish people. But this truth was really recorded 700 years before Jesus even pronounces this verdict. So if you look along with me in Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Listen to what God said 600 years, 700 years earlier. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its walls, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, it will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. The plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. That's going to sound eerily similar to what Jesus is about to say in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. So let's read that together, because Jesus is basically finishing the prophecy. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Follow along if you'd like on the screen. Jesus said, it, it says, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to the tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send. A beloved son. 
Finally, he sent them, him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, I just ask your blessing on this word. And may it speak to our hearts as you remind us strongly here that there is a verdict coming. And you are calling us. Calling us to be worthy farmers, to be responsive farmers. To be worth, worthy grapes. Good crops, good fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're all used to warnings. You can't hardly buy anything any day without some sort of warning on it or some sort of warning label. If you've watched any TV and you've seen a drug commercial, the warnings are longer than the commercial about the drug, telling you what it could do to you, not what it's supposed to do. So we, we, we understand warnings. As parents, we give our children warnings, okay, at all ages. Well, God gave a warning to the children of Israel and the leaders of the Jewish religion seven centuries before Jesus pronounces this verdict. And they didn't listen. If only they had listened. So after these leaders have, have challenged Jesus' authority in, in the end of chapter 11, they challenge his authority, Jesus tells them a parable that pronounces a verdict, a verdict on them for their prolific rebellion. Okay, so that's what the text is centrally about. But our sermon this, this morning is that God's verdict on religion and rebellion impacts all who reject the Son of God. See, this verdict is not just for the Jewish people and the Jewish religion, but it also, Jesus tells us, that others can find freedom in Jesus. So why does God's verdict come and how can we avoid it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Christ brings God's sentence to bear but also an opportunity for exoneration. So first, let's listen and look at the tale of the verdict, the tale of what actually Jesus is going to do or God's going to do. Jesus reminds the leaders of a dooming prophecy. Verses 1 through 9, I want to read them again because I want you to understand who's speaking here. He began to speak to them in parables. That's Jesus. And he tells this parable. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a wine press, a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him 
and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Pretty harsh. Pretty, pretty harsh there. But you know what parables are? They're stories that illustrate a truth or principle. Sometimes the listeners get it, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't understand it. And Jesus has been using parables since Mark chapter 3, verse 6, when they started plotting to kill him. That's how long ago it's been, three years plus, that they started plotting to kill Jesus. And he started using parables. He said, I'll speak to them in, in, in tales that they may not understand and they won't grasp. And now he's speaking to the same group that questioned his authority, the scribes, the priests, and the elders. This group is still standing there after they cornered Jesus about his authority. They just don't have anything else to say. But Jesus has something to say, and he did. They hear some very damning news for themselves. See, they realize at the end of this, in verse 12, you hear them realize that this parable is about them. This parable is about their own hearts and their own lives. They, they finally kind of get a clue here. Hopefully you'll get the clue here, too, that this could also be a parable about you. So let's define the parts of the parable. This is always the interesting part when you read a parable, and if it's kind of allegorical, people try to go too crazy with the definitions, with what equals what. So I'm going to make it very clear this morning. First of all, the man who built the vineyard is God. If, no ifs, ands, or buts. He is God. He built the vineyard, and he leased it to these tenants. The vineyard are the people of Israel. Not the government, not the religion, the people of Israel. Abraham's descendants, the Jews, if you want to call them that. The, the possessors of the promised land. And the parts of the, of the vineyard, the winepress, the walls, the tower, all that, they're tools that God gives them to produce fruit in the vineyard. So those things are just the tools, the, the instruments, if you will. The tenant farmers that the vineyard was leased to, who are they? They're the leaders of Judaism of the time. Jesus is speaking directly to the leaders of the religion of the Jews, the religion of Israel, the Sanhedrin, if you want to go that far. That's who the tenant farmers is, are. The fruit is the holy and righteous leading of all people to God. See, God did not set up Israel and the Jews and bring them out of Egypt into the promised land to be a self-contained religious entity for, them, for God and themselves only. He wanted them to reach the world. Abraham was promised to be a father of many peoples. I don't like using the word nations because we always equate it with a government. Peoples. A father of many peoples. Abraham. So, the fruit that God is expecting from these farmers, these religious leaders, is holy and righteous leading of all people to obey God for his glory. God expected these leaders to teach and lead the people to obey and live the commandments with love and compassion. Everything you've seen Jesus do and the, the upside-downing turning of all of the religious organization that Jesus has been doing is exactly what God expected Back in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's what God expected. He gave them those books, those rules, so they would glorify God. And his glory would cover the whole earth. But they saw it as their own religion. So they didn't have any fruit. 
Now, he sends servants to get the fruit. Now, don't think that God's too hasty because it takes about five years for a vineyard to take root before it would even produce decent grapes to make wine with. So it's not real quick that he sends the servants. But who are the servants? They're the prophets. Not necessarily the priests, prophets, the men of God that God sent with a word from God about the, re- the lostness, the repenting they needed to do, the sins they were involved in. He sent them with this message to repent and live for God. When you read about a prophet, most of the time, a real one, he is talking to somebody about following God. You know some of them. Here's a list of a few. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Amos, Hosea, Ezekiel, Joel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, John the Baptizer. These are men sent by God. There are others too. I'm reading in the book of Chronicles and Kings right now about the, the reign after Solomon and the kingdoms after Solomon. There are many men of God that we don't even hardly recognize. They say one thing in the Bible to try to correct the children of Israel. They're ignored. Some of them are put in prison. And they have no book in the Bible named after them, but they are men of God. So that's the servants. Like I said, most of them were imprisoned. Most of them were beaten. Most of them were abused, and some of them were killed, just like the parable says. Yet they kept on speaking as long as they had voice. And God kept sending them. God kept sending them. He kept warning and wooing these people. He loved them. He thought, one more, maybe I'll send one more. But they ignored him. They ignored him. And finally, he says, I have one left, my beloved son. Now, this is the third time we've heard this in the book of Mark. And each time we've heard it, it's been spoken by God. After Jesus' baptism, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. And now this parable brings it up one more time. My beloved son, my one and only son, surely they'll listen to him. Surely they'll respect him, the one in whom I am well pleased, the one who represents me. That son in this story is Jesus, if you haven't figured that out yet. And God sent him to hopefully draw back and redeem the whole situation. God still was hoping that they would change their mind. And Jesus has come and he has taught them the truths, the same truths that the prophets were trying to tell them for the centuries and centuries and centuries. Repent and follow God. Remember what Jesus said in in Mark 2? The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. He's still telling them the same thing that the, the servants, the previous prophets had told them. See, these Jewish leaders, these religious, their rules and their traditions were what they were, they were, they thought that was fruit. They thought, look, we're, we're protecting the law. It was really poison. It it wasn't fruit at all. It poisoned the intentions of God's mercy toward them and toward the rest of the world. So Jesus went so far as to clear the temple. Doesn't that tell you something? We must be doing something wrong. That guy cleared the whole temple. Nope, it didn't tell him a thing. Then he cursed a fig tree and it died to pronounce a curse on the religion of the Jews. And they ignored him. They ignored him and then they even went so far as to challenge him, to challenge his authority. 
and they want to kill him. They've been wanting to do that since Mark chapter 3, verse 6. And they will, in time, kill him. But God has planned for this for a grand purpose, a purpose greater than we could even mastermind, a purpose greater than sometimes we can even understand. But God will come, and he will destroy these tenants, these farmers, and give the vineyard, <clears throat> the vineyard, the kingdom of God, to others. And none of us, none of us think that's a wrong thing. Of course he can do that. They, they mistreated his servants. They killed his son. Of course, he's got every right to come and kill those tenant farmers. I mean, they didn't even think that was a bad idea. <clears throat> they were like, that's, that's justice. He is just in doing this to the murderers. And you know what? Eventually God will take away their temple. He will destroy their entire sacrificial system. The entire system that they depend on to commune with a holy, righteous God. They, God's going to take it away from them. In AD 70, the Romans destroyed the temple. It is still destroyed today. It has not been rebuilt. And I don't know that it ever will be, but that's another whole sermon and discussion. The real rub here, though, they're not worried about the death of the tenant farmers, which really is them. They're not really worried about that that much. That's how much pride they have in the fact that their religion is good and they're good with God. No, the real rub here is not their death, but that God will give the vineyard to someone else. He's going to give the vineyard. He's going to give the kingdom. He's going to give the promised land in their minds to someone else. Well, we've got to realize one thing. <clears throat> God's not talking about dirt here, okay? He's talking about the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom. He's not talking about dirt. But this is appalling to them. He's going to give away everything God has given us in this kingdom, in this dirt, in this land. See, their pedigree and their heritage, it feeds their pride. Oh, we're so good. We are the chosen people of God. It feeds their pride to the point that this statement Jesus makes is unbearable. He's going to give it away to others? We lose our position. We lose our country. That's what they're concerned about. Well, who are the others? I haven't defined that yet, have I? Who are the others in this parable? It is those who will respect the Son, recognize Him as heir, and love Him as God expects us to love Him. This must be the church. These people must be the believers in Jesus Christ, those who by grace have been saved and redeemed to God's fellowship. That's us, by the way. We're the others. We are the others that the kingdom of God is being given to. The unfolding story and plan of God's redemption of humanity is that a new Israel will be formed. A new Israel will be created. And that new Israel is the church the believers, made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's not, it's not excluding the Jews. Obviously, 3,000 Jews became Christians on the day of Pentecost. So he's not excluding the Jews, but it's a new Israel. And Paul talks about that in Galatians. We are the true Israel. We are the true children of Abraham. It's a conglomerate, if you will, of all nationalities, all peoples, all language groups, which is why it's so important that we send people to places that are unreached, unengaged. There are 3,000 plus unreached, unengaged people groups, meaning there's no Christian presence there. They've never heard about Jesus Christ. 
if they've never left their, their area, their geographic area. So Jesus' parable right here declares, faith in the Son of God is the only way to peace and forgiveness in the Father. So that's what Jesus is basically saying right there. It's going to be given away to others, and they will find forgiveness. But there's going to be more on that on the next point. So Jesus pronounces this verdict on these, and it ties all the way back to Isaiah 5. God made it clear this was going to happen. Some of what what was predicted in Isaiah 5 happened during the exiles, when Israel was taken away by the Assyrians, and then Judah was taken away by the, the Babylonians. Some of it happened. But the fruitlessness of Israel falls on these leaders right now, and that's what Jesus is saying. God will take their people from them and give the kingdom of God to the church. So that's the, that's the summation of the story. But before I move past this parable too far, I don't want you to miss one, one very subtle but important truth about this parable. I hope you see it already. I want you to see this morning, I want you to see this morning the relentless patience of Almighty God. How patient he was. The kindness he showed Israel. It, it, is, it blows my mind. As I was looking at this parable and reading this and got to thinking about it in terms of the history of the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, the children of Abraham, why would God keep sending prophets to these people? Why would he even consider sending his son? Why? The only reasonable answer is God's gracious and merciful character. That's the only real reason. Well, let's back up a little bit. All the way to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, why did God give them a second chance? Why? They rejected God as God. They just said, I'm going to be my own God. Why did he give them another chance? Then why did he choose a people specifically to bless and make a chosen group, give them their own land? Why did he tolerate their lack of faith at Mount Sinai? Don't forget, they built a golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. Why? Why did he allow them to split the kingdom in two? And both of them, for the most part, never followed God after that. The the, uh, Judah did a little bit every once in a while, but it's up and down. Israel never followed God. And then during the centuries and centuries of rebellion and rejection, he still sent prophets to correct them. He still sent them. Why? Why? I don't know. It it, it bugged me all week. I was like, there is just no logical explanation of why he would do this. And after they killed the first prophet that he sent, whoever that was, why not give up on them then? Oh, by the way, Isaiah was sawn in half, vertically, according to legend. I don't have proof of that. It's not in Scripture. But Isaiah, one of the major prophets, was killed because of his words. So why would he send others? He sent Jeremiah and said, you're going to preach, but they're never going to listen to you. You're going to speak my word constantly your whole life. They're never going to listen to you. Told Ezekiel and Isaiah the same thing, basically. Why send others? Why did God God hold out hope 
for these people for centuries, ever since 900 B.C., when the kingdom split in two, God kept sending prophets to call them back to his love. They would not repent. Well, here's the answer. The only answer I can come up with, and I'm not a smart man. I have an Alabama public education. I'm not a smart man. But his holy and righteous character can be the only answer for us. His undying devotion to humanity is the only answer. His holy and righteous character and qualities is the only answer. It still doesn't make sense, but it's the only answer I can come up with. It's not something I could do ever. The tolerant, hopeful, kind, unbending patience of God is the only answer. And you know what? Every one of us in this room has experienced and does experience that patience every day. Oh, God puts up with us. Man, does he put up with us. See, Jesus used this parable to pronounce a verdict that has been looming over the children of Israel for over 900 years since the kingdom split in two. And the God of wrath we see in the Old Testament, the one that everybody says the, the, the God in the Old Testament is different from the God in the New Testament. That's a bunch of hooey, okay? The God of wrath we see in the Old Testament is the God of tireless patience as well. He's the God of all Scripture. Amen? Amen? Humans have very little patience with ourselves, okay? So let's bring this down to our level a little bit. We, I'm impatient with myself, getting things right, doing things, remembering things. We're, we're also impatient with each other. Just watch people driving on the road. They're very impatient with people that don't drive the way they want to drive. And even as parents, we run out of patience sometimes. I wish my mom had had a light on the back of her head when she'd had enough. I'd I'd at least known that it was coming, but she didn't. We run out of patience. We don't have patience. Yet most of us parents, though, we'll give our kids plenty of time, maybe, to obey, repent, return. Like the prodigal's father who just sat there and watched for his son to come home. We wait, sometimes for years. And for God's children, his patience is eternal. For those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, his patience is eternal. For those outside of God's family, it's limited. It's limited by your death. So what is the purpose of God having such tireless patience with humans? Well, Paul tells us why he's doing this, the purpose in it. Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Listen to what Paul says. and This is the most comforting thing you can find when you're thinking about the wrath of God coming down on these leaders and could come down on your own soul. Listen to what Paul says. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And he had listed a bunch of sins in the verses before in, in chapter 1 of Romans. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Repentance is the reason for God's patience. He's hoping. He's pleading for repentance. Repent or be damned forever. I mean, that's the choices. We need to soften our hearts instead of it being hard and embrace his kindness. I hope you see the application for your own life this morning. A verdict is coming for everybody. A verdict is coming for everybody. Judgment will arrive one day. I hope you've heard the wooing and warnings that God has given you for your soul. He sent them. You're hearing one now, by the way. From God's word, you're hearing another warning. And for those who have rejected Jesus, his sacrifice for your forgiveness, you've rejected that. The patience of God is on you for now. For now. Okay? The patience of God is on you for now. God tolerates your insolence right now. He tolerates it. But don't think his tolerance is acceptance or condoning your behavior. He's not ever condoning your misbehavior and your rejection of his son. He doesn't condone, but he patiently, he patiently waits and asks you to believe before it is too late. He waits on you. You believe it? The God of the universe is waiting on you to choose his son. You know, God says in Ezekiel, he says, I do not take pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. The message is clear. Repent and live. Live forever. See, God wishes you to repent and believe in his son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. When death comes, it will be everlasting too late. It will be everlasting too late when death comes to heed this call to repent and believe. Now, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we don't need to sit here too smug, okay? We've trusted in Jesus' sacrifice. We've received his forgiveness. And God expects from us what John the Baptist told his crowd, the fruit of repentance. He expects us to produce the fruit of repentance. Don't test the patience of God on your pet sins anymore. Don't think, well, I, it's just this one little sin, God. Don't test God's patience on that. He will discipline you. Because he doesn't not discipline his children. Otherwise, you wouldn't think he was, you were his children. So we need to confess and we need to repent and we need to enjoy the kindness of God in the right frame of mind. Not so we can abuse his grace and take advantage of his kindness and his patience. Repentance means more than just stop doing wrong. We, we a lot of times hear that because we talk about it in terms of the, the salvation moment. But after you're saved... You continue to repent. I have to repent every day. No one's perfect. We all got sins in our life. Repentance means more than just stop doing the wrong. It means do right. It means live for Jesus in an obvious outward way. See, God has poured kindness on us in patient understanding. Let us not forget to serve him. As John wrote to a church in 1 John, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we can be called the children of God. Don't abuse that. Don't test his patience. So Jesus concludes his parable, and after he pronounces such a dire verdict and sentence on these leaders, he then reminds them of why the Son came anyway. Jesus reminds us of a hopeful prophecy, verses 10 through 12. I'm going to read that hopeful prophecy to you. 
Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. This is and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. So Jesus jumps from one Old Testament story, basically, from Isaiah into Psalms 118, verses 22 through 23. And, and he asks them this question, have you read? Now, they had read this many times. Matter of fact, these are students of, the, of, their, of their Bible, the Old Testament. They had read this passage many times. They had probably sung it, because most Psalms are songs that the Jews would, would sing. And so, have you read? And matter of fact, a few days ago, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, they heard part of this psalm shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they'd heard part of it. But Jesus quotes a little different part of it, and he connects the rejection of the son in the parable to the rejection of the stone in this psalm. Jesus is that stone. Make no bones about it. Jesus is the stone which becomes the cornerstone, the key piece in the foundation and the construction of God's redemptive plan. Now, most of you have been around and you know what a cornerstone's for. I taught some teenagers and some college students one time this passage, and I had a little girl raise her hand and goes, what's a cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone replaced, or is replaced today by what we call a square and a level and maybe a plumb bob. And now it's even replaced by all the GPS stuff and everything, but a cornerstone was a perfectly square stone, a perfectly square stone that they would put on the corner of a building so that they would be correct this way, correct that way, and correct this way. So otherwise, the building's going to be leaning, lopsided. It's a, it's, a, it's a stone that is for the construction integrity and the structural integrity of the building. And God took a stone that they were rejecting, by the, it was rejected by the religious leaders. It was going to be eventually rejected by the people initially. And he made it to be the centerpiece of his eternal plan. It is a marvelous thing in the eyes of, those who, of us who see it. Of those who believe in the Son of God. Salvation comes by this stone. And if you read that whole psalm, Psalm 118, it basically says that. Salvation comes by this stone. Upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this stone became the wonderful way by which all can be saved. And that day was the day the Lord made for salvation. And let us rejoice and be glad in it as the psalm continues. Hope came to us in that promise. Hope came to these men in that promise. Jesus is reminding them, hey, haven't you read? Didn't you, don't you remember this? But... They walked away. They walked away because they were defeated. They didn't get to do what they wanted to do, and they were angry. But they couldn't arrest him because he had just offended them. He had, there was no charges they could bring against him. We'll talk about why they arrested him at night later when we get to that part. But they had no charges. They were just offended. And they feared the crowd who accepted Jesus' truth. They may not have understood it completely, but they accepted what Jesus was saying as truth. They saw him as at least as a prophet, but he was much more than a prophet. They walked away with no rebuttal, nothing to say. They chose right then and there to reject again. One more time, they rejected the hope of eternal life in the cornerstone of Jesus. They once more tested God's patience. They once more put his kindness to the test. 
it's a sad, sad tale for these men, for the Jewish religion. But it's kind of like when Nathan confronted David about his affair with Bathsheba, then his murder of her husband. I mean, wow, David, a man after God's own heart, guilty of adultery and murder. And Nathan confronts him with a, a parable. And at the end, David's incensed. He's angry at this person who stole this poor man's lamb. And Nathan says, you are the man. David repented right then in tears and prayers. And he sought God's face for forgiveness. These leaders have just heard the same thing. You are those tenant farmers. You are the builders who rejected the cornerstone. You are rejecting the Messiah. But they refused to repent and walked away. Well, I want to help you a little bit understand deeper this, this passage about the stone, the cornerstone. And the best person to go to for that is, of course, Peter. Peter writes in, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read this whole section. He quotes this passage again. But I think it gives clear guidance and clear instruction and clear illumination for our own souls. As you come to him, Peter says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, which we call the church. To be holy, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, I love it whenever the Bible says, but you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Glory, glory, hallelujah. We have received mercy. And that's why Emily's going and we send missionaries. As they go there to call people out of the darkness into that marvelous light. To call them from a family that's not going to support them to a family that loves them in Christ. So what have you built your life on? Have you accepted the cornerstone as your foundation of life and salvation? Let me tell you something, friends. Hope and I mean real hope, not wishful thinking. Hope, real hope, is found in the sure and solid rock of Jesus Christ. He is the only true source of eternal life. Being God's people, built on the rock of Jesus, finds joy and mercy forever. Faith is the means to that salvation. On Christ of solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Trust no other foundation but Jesus. 
Amen? Jesus pronounced a verdict on the religious and the religion of the Jews and a hope that endures for all time for the new Israel, the church. Did you know this parable is about you? Did you know that? You may not have thought of that, but it is. It's about every one of us. At many points in our life, we have tested the patience of God. We have rejected Jesus, the Son. We tested God's patience, abused his kindness, and sought our own way in rebellion to his. And for us who have come to the living stone and found forgiveness and eternal life, let's praise God for that, that we had that revealed to us, that we came to him because of his patience. But let's also pray for those who are still testing his patience because there are plenty out there. If you've watched any of the news and seen any of the news, you know there's a lot of people out there that think they have just had their whole lives destroyed by the reversal of the Roe versus Wade. It's an opportunity, an opportunity for us to show them hope, real hope. So let's pray. Let's take a time of pastoral prayer. We'll pray silently. If you want to come to the altar and pray, the front and pray, you can do that. We'll have a time of silent prayer, then I'll close us out. Let's pray.